I'd like to turn you in God's word to the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, the end of chapter 41, and the first nine verses of chapter 42. We read from verse 21 of Isaiah 41. I'm going to make one change. The beginning of chapter 42, you see the word behold. Modern translations tend to either change that or leave it out altogether. There are two previous beholds in the Hebrew in chapter 41 but they are translated in verse 24 and verse 29 as indeed well okay we know what they're trying to do but the contrast between the behold of verse 40 uh, of chapter 42 and the two beholds in chapter 41 is very deliberate and so I'm going to read it as behold and I hope you will begin to grasp the significance of what is being said. Because the section we're going to read in chapter 1 is, concerns the stupidity of following idols and their emptiness and their vanity. And then chapter 42 brings us to the Messiah by way of contrast. So here is God confronting the idol worshippers and the idols. Verse 21 Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us the things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it all together see it together behold you are nothing and your work is nothing he who chooses you is an abomination I've raised up one from the north and he shall come and from the rising of the sun he shall call on my name and he shall come against princes as though mortar as the potter treads clay who has declared from the beginning that we may know and former th times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, Look, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them and there was no counselor who when I asked of them, could answer a word. Behold, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. 
He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. We thank you, our God, for your holy and infallible word that declares to us the things that are past, the things that are to come, that declares to us the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Open our eyes then to see and to believe and set our hearts singing with joy because of your salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I wonder how many of you have heard the phrase, K Sarah Sarah. Now, I'm aware there are many different cultures here this morning, people in different parts of the world. And you may not have come across that, but in the last 50 years or so, that song has been sung again and again and again. It appears in a lot of modern films. When I was a teenager, and that's a long time ago, it was a very popular song. Sarah translated means whatever will be, will be. And in fact, the chorus of that song said, K Sarah Sarah, whatever will be, the future's not ours to see, K Sarah Sarah. It's a kind of happy fatalism. We don't know what's going on in this world. Uh, whatever happens, you can't, you can't change anything. You just accept what life throws at you. The French have a phrase, c'est la vie. That's life. Accept it, get on with it. There's nothing certain about the future with that kind of mentality. Many years ago, another cynic said, the only things that are certain about the future are death and taxes. <laughs> I think it was Thomas Hobbes who said that, but uh, I'm not absolutely sure. I suppose that's true. But again, it, it's cynical, isn't it? There's no meaning, there's no purpose. You can't tell... The beginning from the end, no one knows what's going to happen. And that is pretty much the attitude that many people have in this world. Or, on the other extreme, there are those who say, well, whatever you want to be, you be. Dream your dreams and make your dreams become a reality. It's, it's just another kind of, well, we're not certain what's going to happen, but you're going to make the future. Now, there are, of course, lots of things. As Christians, we do not know about the future. But if you are a Christian trusting in Jesus Christ, you know that one day 
Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to gather all his people together. He's going to raise them from the dead and they're going to have a new life, a consummated reality and a new heavens and a new earth. Death is not the end. That is absolutely certain. But there are many people perhaps in Isaiah's day, who did not share that hope about the future. They were in a desperate state, a desperate condition. We're living in the days now of Isaiah. The ten tribes have already been carried away into oblivion. Judah is left, and they are a small, very small kingdom threatened by Assyria, Sennacherib, and then later on by Nebuchadnezzar when Babylon became the world empire. Foolish Judah had copied Israel, the nation, the ten tribes. They'd gone after the gods of this world. They'd fallen foul of idolatry. They'd transgressed the covenant they had abandoned God. They'd effectively thrown up their hands and said, what's the point? Where are we going? We don't know where we're going. We haven't got a hope for the future. But Isaiah speaks a different language altogether. He speaks very clearly about the God who is in control of all things. Here in chapter 41, God pours scorn on the idols he lays down a challenge he throws down a gauntlet as it were and says okay you tell us about the things that have passed you tell us about the future come on let's hear what you have to say you haven't got anything to say you're just a bag of wind that's what he says you're worthless the molded images are wind and confusion What's God's answer? It's amazing. It's staggering. It's stupendous. There's no fatalism here at all. There is a certain future. There is an abounding hope. There is an overflowing hope and confidence. But it is in God and what God will do through his servant. Unlike the gods of the nations... He is able, as he says in verse 9 of chapter 42, Behold, the former things have come to pass. These are the things that I predicted and spoke about. And new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And only God can speak in that way. Only he can speak such language. And it's the new things that he declares that we're going to look at this morning. And the new things focus on the one described here in chapter 42, verses 1 to 9, as my servant. We'll look at the identity of the servant, then we will look at the task entrusted to him, and then the grounds for our overflowing confidence and hope. In other words, what is our response to be to these things? So firstly, the identity of this servant. It's there in verse 1. Behold, my servant 
whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. When God speaks, he sets forth his servant. He's a living person. He's not like the idols, worthless idols. God speaks and he says, look, see, something new, something wonderful. That's why it's behold. He's grabbing our attention. It's like the roll of a drum, the blast of a trumpet. If you heard a blast of a trumpet, you'd immediately say, what's that? What's that all about? (laughs) And that's what God is doing. He's getting your attention, saying, I have something important to tell you. This is what it's all about. God is to announce something remarkable. Chapters 38 to chapter 55 of Isaiah is the book of the servant of the Lord. There are four servant songs. The most famous is Isaiah 52, verse 12, into chapter 53. The reads like the New Testament gospel, speaking of the death and the sufferings of Christ. But this is the first song, chapter 42, and it's very significant. My servant whom I uphold. That means that God has got a firm grip upon this servant. This servant does what the Father wants him to do. Because we'll see, it is God the Father speaking of my servant, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He will succeed because I have determined to keep him for myself. He is my servant. He is mine. I am in control. And I delight in him. He is my elect one in whom my souls delight. He's my chosen one. It's a matter of divine appointment. It's not by chance. It's a divine appointment. Now, you may have someone you work with they're good at their work, but you don't particularly like them. <laughs> uh, they, they rub you up the wrong way. Uh, that isn't the relationship here, is it, at all? This servant was the joy of his father's heart. He delighted in him because he did his father's will. And here you see we have the first clue as to his identity. I don't think it's difficult for us to discern who is being described here. You recall the voice from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration and at the baptism in the Jordan. This is my beloved son, says the father, in whom I am well pleased. And one of the passages adds, hear him. But my servant, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. It's the same kind of language, isn't it? This is a prophecy of the coming one that we read about in Luke's gospel. The incarnate son of God, identified as the servant, the promised servant of the Lord. And he will make a dramatic entrance onto the stage of history. 
Israel, Judah and the nations are in a desperate state. Israel doesn't exist anymore. Judah will not exist for a while. She will go into exile and the people will be throwing up their hands in horror and saying, well, that's the end. But God says, no, it's only the beginning. <laughs> it's only the beginning of what I'm going to do. Sin will have done its worst. Everything will seem hopeless and helpless. Emptiness, vanity, no sure word, only uncertainty. And many have given up hope. It's a case of our Sarah, whatever will be, will be situation. But now God speaks. Now God intervenes. There is hope. There is encouragement. There is comfort. Behold my servant. He speaks to us in every generation. He is the only hope of this generation. He's your only hope. He's my only hope. This God is the eternal God who still speaks. And he speaks into our generation with all its fatalism, with all its wishful thinking, with all its folly, and says, Behold my servant. See what I am going to do through him. So let's look secondly at the task, the task that is entrusted to him by God as the servant. God equips him, first of all, in verse 1. I have put my spirit upon him to ensure success. Here is something that is supernatural, a supernatural endowment. He is divinely endowed. Jesus Christ is the one who is full of the Spirit in order to accomplish his task. He did not accomplish his task merely because he was the Son of God. He was Jesus, the God-man, but he was full of the Holy Spirit. And God says, I'll put my Spirit upon him. This is God's work, you see. I will do this. I will do this. He's been anointed like the prophets and priests and kings of the Old Testament. But he is the Messiah. And the Messiah means the anointed one. The one who is full of the Spirit of God. In indeed, in chapter 61 of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good tidings to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and equipped me in order to do this preaching. And it's spelling it out in more detail there. But here we are told also that his task is to bring forth justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. Now that would have staggered any Jew. I mean, the Gentiles were dogs. And they continue to be dogs down through the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles. A Jew and a Gentile want nothing to do with Gentiles. They're unclean. They're uncircumcised. They're not the chosen people. We are. That was the attitude of the Jews. But here God says, you say those things, but I'm saying this servant will bring justice 
to the Gentile nations of the world. And there they are in all their idolatry. Pagan, idol worship, sexual immorality. But Jesus Christ, God's servant, will bring universal justice, righteousness. In verses 3 and 4, you find again, he will bring forth justice for truth. Verse 4, he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. The coastlands being the nations again. So what does this mean? What is this justice? What is this righteousness? Well, it doesn't simply mean that God will put all rights all, all wrongs right. It does mean that. He will bring about the deserved judgment on everyone who's followed idols. There is no question about that. Anyone who refuses to recognize the one true and living God will face righteous judgment. But the justice, the righteousness spoken of here is the decisions that God makes and God pronounces that embrace everything that God has revealed, his truth, his law. It involves judgment, but the servant has a much bigger task than simply bringing judgment upon unrighteousness. He is to bring judgment and righteousness to the nations in their idolatry. I want to emphasize that. These people do not know the God of Israel. You remember how Sennacherib taunted uh, Hezekiah and the people. You know, I've done this. I, where, where are the gods? Where are the gods of this nation, that nation, that nation? Your God any different? He poured scorn. Well, that was the kind of mentality that God is speaking into. And he says... My servant will bring justice to the Gentiles. What does it mean then? It means that this servant, this Lord Jesus Christ, has been sent in order to bring all nations under the authority, the righteous rule and authority of God, and under obedience to him. The New Testament tells us, doesn't it? that all will bow the knee ultimately to Jesus Christ. Every knee, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Well, how will that be? It's because of the righteousness that God will bring into effect. It becomes very clear in the second servant song in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6. Indeed, he says, God says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God is going to bring salvation, not merely judgment on those who refuse Christ, 
but he is going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He is going to establish his authority. Men and women are going to bow down and worship his son, Jesus Christ. They're going to confess him as their saviour and their Lord. My salvation to the ends of the earth. And we're sitting here today and we're part of that. We're part of that. Wherever the church of Jesus Christ is found among the nations of this world, tribes, tongues, peoples, whoever they are, here it is being spoken about. It's the work of Jesus Christ. It's the work of God the Father bringing the righteous rule and bringing salvation to the nations. What have the idols got to offer in comparison? God says, I declare new things. This is what I will do. Before they spring forth, I tell you. Only God can say that. Only God can predict that and bring it to pass. Men and women make lots of promises, don't they? But they don't keep them. They haven't got the power to keep them. They're just rash. This isn't God being rash. This is God saying, this is what I'm going to do through my servant. And I'm telling you this. This has been my plan all along. Remember God's promise to Abraham? Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. In you, all nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You and your seed. Paul picks it up in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God is just spinning out now how that is going to happen. It's going to happen through the seed of Abraham. It's going to happen through my servant, my chosen one. He's the one who's going to bring justice and righteousness. The Gentiles are going to be brought out of darkness. The earth, says Isaiah, is going to be filled, filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And when's that going to happen? When David's greater son establishes his rule. Would you dare believe any of that if it wasn't God who said it? But here it is in black and white. 800 years before the Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world, God has made these promises. And what a contrast to the way men go about conquering and establishing their authority. You just think of Nebuchadnezzar or Sennacherib. They throw their weight around, they crush their enemy, they take them off exile, they destroy some, they just do with them as they please. The servant, we are told here, is marked by quietness and by gentleness. He doesn't need to throw his weight around. He will succeed. Verse 4, 
He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth. The coastlands shall wait for his law. And how will he do it? Verse 2. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice. Nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. Matthew quotes that fully in chapter 12 of his gospel. At that point in the life of Jesus, there was intensified controversy. The healing miracles, especially those he did on the Sabbath, infuriated the Jewish people. And Christ withdraws to avoid the controversy. They want to kill him, but he refuses to cry out in self-defense. He refuses to wrangle with them. But he deals no crushing blows to them. He is gentle. He is quiet as he goes about his work of establishing righteousness on the earth. If you were to hand out a manual for kings, for rulers, for authorities as to how they conquer, you wouldn't find any of this advice, would you? <laughs> military might, military power is a million miles removed from what Christ does. There's a gentleness, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Sin has done its awful work. Sin has crushed us. It's almost killed us. And yet Christ looks upon us in mercy and kindness and picks us up as it were. Doesn't snuff out our life. Doesn't destroy us. This passage then clearly sets before you the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's chosen servant it's a summons to each and every one of you here this morning a summons to you god is speaking behold focus your attention upon him this servant of mine here is my testimony i'm declaring to you that jesus the servant of the lord the messianic king he is summoning you now to respond to him to trust in him you don't know the beginning from the end. You don't know your future. But here is God speaking and saying, your future is safe in my hands, in the hands of my servant, because he brings salvation. He brings true righteousness. You won't find it anywhere else. People make their promises, but they're empty. They're vain, just like the idols of Isaiah's day. He's calling you then to submit to him, to recognize who he is and to submit yourself to him. To repent of your unbelief, to repent of pride and to believe on him and on him alone for your salvation. But he's also telling you because of his mercy not to throw in the towel in despair not to give way to the hopelessness and fatalism of this world. 
the opening words of John's Gospel, the opening chapters, John the Baptist comes and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Another behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That includes your sin and my sin. Are there some of you here this morning? You think of yourself as religious. You're here. (laughs) But is your religion all on the outside? You must answer that. You attend the services, you pray, you sing the hymns. But do you really trust in Jesus Christ? That is the key. Do you know him for yourself as the servant of God who has established salvation for the Gentile nations of this world? He did that by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. He's an all-sufficient saviour. He's appointed to bring God's salvation to you here and now. It's all here in God's word. But let me conclude briefly. Briefly, What are the grounds we have for believing all those things? Are there grounds we have for overflowing hope? Well, God anticipates our doubts and our fears. With God, it's never a matter of case, sirrah, sirrah. The world scoffs at us because of our hope and our confidence in God. But listen to what God the Lord says in the latter part of this chapter, in verses 5 to 8. And tell me if these are not grounds for overflowing hope in God, salvation from sin in God's servant Jesus Christ alone. Who is speaking here? None other than God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. It is God who is saying these things. It is God underlining a hundred times what he has said. And he's saying, remember who I am. I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. How did God bring his world into being? He spoke and it was done. It was the power of God. And it's the same God who is saying these things. Here are the grounds for your confidence. The living God is speaking. The first ground of confidence is what I've just said. The power of God demonstrated in creation. He gives life and breath to all his creatures. The idols of the wind and confusion that God brings into being this world. No one else is worth listening to. No one else has the power to fulfill his word. God's power. But then God's protection and provision. I, the Lord, verse 6, have called you, that's my servant, in righteousness. I will hold your hand. That's a way of saying, I will protect you. I will be with you. I've called you in righteousness. I've given you as a covenant. I've given you as a light to the Gentiles. 
He is the transforming power of the gospel. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus went into the synagogue in Capernaum? They didn't like what he had to say. But he opened the book and he was reading Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Christ is the great teacher. He's the great healer. He has conquered disease. He has conquered death. The devil... He alone will die on the cross and rise from the dead. But at every point, at every point in his life, the Father protects him. The Father equips him and provides for him that he will then be successful in his mission. God guarantees it. God underlines what he is saying. Another section, Isaiah 45. Look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. That's a glorious passage. If I'm right, Pastor Jeremy preached on that text when this building was first opened. I wasn't able to do it, he did. And someone was converted that day. But then there's a final ground. There's the power of God. There's protection and provision that God supplies. And then, when God says, I am the Lord, verse 8, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another is the preeminence now of God I'm not going to share my praise with anybody else I'm certainly not going to share it with carved images they're useless they're vain they're empty I'm declaring to you new things these things are established for my glory for my praise, my servant will glorify me. And when salvation is brought to the Gentile nations, praise will go up to me. Men and women will glory in me. Salvation is preached throughout this world. Jesus Christ is offered to all, all without distinction. Whoever trusts in the Lord will be saved. Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Who does not marvel at these things? When you sit down and read and reflect on these things, And you reflect on the circumstances in which they were spoken. You have to say, 
Only God can do these things. And God does those things. It's 800 years plus 2,000 since these words were spoken. And God is still fulfilling his saving purposes in this world. God is still calling men and women to himself. Salvation for all in his servant Jesus Christ. Kay Sarah Sarah is over there somewhere, it's a million miles removed. Has nothing to do with the gospel. Our confidence is in God, in his power, his protection, his provision, and his sovereign determination to get glory for himself through his son, Jesus Christ. There lies our confidence. We have a hope, and God will be glorified on that day. How do we respond to all this? Look at the next verse. We didn't read it. Sing. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. And we're going to do that. We're going to sing.